Hello, this is Nick Fletcher at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. And I'd like to start off today's interview with the PDPod podcast with a little bit of a story. So in the spring of 2007, I was out for my fellowship interviews, and I had the opportunity to travel to St. Louis to meet with Perry Scheneker, who is the father of one of my good friends. And in discussion with Perry about possible fellowships, we had talked about the chance to work with Larry Lenke for a month or so during a, during a potential fellowship. And I remember quite well waiting around at the end of the day for the opportunity to talk to Dr. Lenke. And we met in a small office of his where he had an old x-ray Rolodex where you would push, you know, F2 almost like a vending machine and the x-rays would uh, come up. And so I asked him about some of the cases that we would be doing should I have the opportunity to spend time with him. And he said, well, let's take a peek at my last couple of weeks. And he proceeded to show me 10 cases that I swear I probably have not seen and will never see in my career, all within the scope of about a two to three week period. And I think that for many of us, this is sort of the uh, nature of Larry's practice from the outside. We tend to see it as a series of really remarkable and incredibly complex cases that are treated with oftentimes novel and somewhat amazing approaches. And I think that within the spine world, he is often considered sort of the godfather of spinal deformity right now and uh, has a practice that really is not replicated anywhere else that I'm aware of. Today's interview with the PDPod podcast is therefore a little bit special for a guy like me who's a spine uh, surgeon because of the fact that I am oftentimes really in awe of some of the things that Larry does. And I've had the opportunity to work with him in a number of different arenas, uh, both at the on the academic side, on the uh, uh, sort of more uh, development side, um, as well as other arenas. And I'm always just amazed at how humble and uh, open he is and how for somebody who could be a lot more intimidating, he really has the ability to connect with people um, uh, like me even early in my career. So this is, I think, a a remarkable hour and a half discussion, and I apologize to those of you uh, who have short attention spans, but I just couldn't pack this all into an hour. I think there's a tremendous amount of material here and some really amazing pearls. I know that personally I'm going to be listening to this over and over again. So uh, thank you, as always, to those of you who support this concept, to Carter Clemens for his unwavering support, and I really hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging broad conversation as much as I did to make it. So thank you all for your time and uh, enjoy. I'd like to invite Larry into the podcast right now. And I would say that for a spine guy, this is sort of a dream come true to have the opportunity to sit down for an hour and a half and talk with you. So I really couldn't appreciate this more. Oh, my my uh, pleasure. Thanks for doing this. So um, Typically, in the, with the past podcasts, I have uh, started out with talking about a little bit of background and whatnot. But I think that tonight my hope was instead to focus perhaps on some other things and, and really get into it right from the get-go rather than uh, talk about uh, growing up. And, and perhaps we can get back to some of that at the end. Uh, but one of the things that's really fascinated me, uh, and I've done a little bit of background research, and I've I've talked to some of your former fellows before this, but I've also listened to you enough times at at conferences and on webinars and whatnot to know that one of the things that has been incredibly valuable 
to you has been your team uh, and how that has allowed you over time to carry out the surgeries that you're doing. Um, and I was sort of curious if you could talk to me about surgical planning, um, really from sort of the, the ground up, if you will, and how this has changed over time, who in your team really helps with this, how you sort of set up your own with regards to this. And then finally, if you can comment, how did you bring such a adept, skilled team from one center that was firing on all cylinders to another center and allow it to fire also on all cylinders? Sure. That's a multifaceted question, yeah, but a very sorry. important one, obviously. <laughs> no, a very important one. So I think um, planning for me uh, kind of begins uh, uh, really when I first see an operative patient and, you know, the, the determination has been made that surgery is the best uh, solution for their spinal deformity. Um, obviously, I, I'm already starting to think of approach. You know, for me, it's pretty easy now. I, I do everything from the back, so it made it easier. Obviously, when I started my practice, I I did uh, uh, anteriors uh, and as well as posterior approaches, but uh, as well as sarcoscopic approaches uh, back in the 90s, uh, as we all did. Um, so I think that it begins then. Uh, one thing that I've been very fortunate with is that um, basically any case that I've ever done in my 28-year career now has been uh, vetted through conferences, indication conferences. So back in St. Louis, uh, we had a weekly um, spinal deformity conference at the Shriners Hospital. Uh, Perry Schenecker basically uh, was my mentor there uh, early on and throughout my entire career, actually, at, uh, at Washington University, I participated in. Um, and then in addition to that conference, uh, all the cases that were done for the week, uh, uh, we had an indications conference for our fellowship back, back at the main medical center. So uh, two to three hours every week, uh, uh, I was going to my cases and my partner's cases who were, you know, who were doing spinal deformity, uh, to review the pre and post-op cases. So that, that was, to me, that's a great form of kind of planning because you're thinking about the cases that are being presented. You're obviously the plans being presented and the, the plan is often critiqued, right? And sometimes the plans changed, um, uh, obviously, uh, during, during those conferences. So that, that's, that's, uh, I think a, a really important aspect, I think, to, uh, getting a very um, in-depth spinal deformity practice is to vet your, your cases with others. Uh, I, I can't imagine where I would be if I was basically on my own uh, without um, input from my partners, so people like Keith Bridwell, Perry Schenecker, um, uh, Ron Lehman uh, throughout my career. I mean, I, I think it's been, uh, uh, that's been a huge component to, uh, I think, progressing quite uh, quite rapidly up uh, the, the knowledge base. Um, and then, so for personal planning though, I think uh, what, what, I've, what I've done is um, uh, I have a, uh, a kind of an old fashioned uh, a calendar that I have right in front of me here. It basically is a month calendar with every uh, uh, day of the month listed and my schedule is on there. So uh, basically I can tell you the name of the case I've scheduled for November 21st year. Uh, looking at my calendar, and uh, uh, probably once a day, often several times a day, I kind of go through that calendar, just looking at names. Uh, I have uh, cases that I know are going to be tougher. I, I have the name of the patient and the case I'm doing, and I recognize uh, uh, the cases that are kind of to be pointing on that are a little more difficult. So I'm already thinking about those cases even months in advance. Um, uh, to tell you the truth. I've always had that. Uh, and I like it because I see a month, of, uh, my whole month calendar at a time. I, I, even though I have electronic calendars, obviously that I use now, but I still like this paper calendar that has the whole month, my month schedule uh, uh, that I can see on one page. And I flip the next page as the next month's calendar. So uh, that, that's kind of a, a very uh, kind of crude way of, 
of planning then in that uh, I, I do recognize names and the cases and it kind of highlights things that I need to start thinking about. You know, do I need a model, a 3D printed model made for that case? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll decide even later on that it's probably a good idea that I get that made. So I'll send an email to my nurse to do that. Um, so that's kind of long range planning is, is, is done through that kind of uh, uh, almost daily uh, um, uh, thought process. Maybe may only just five seconds or 10 seconds of thinking about something, but I, I'll, I, I'm constantly thinking about my, my future cases like that. And as far as in-depth uh, planning of individual cases, um, uh, I see patients for a pre-op visit uh, anywhere between one day and ideally somewhere between two and three weeks before surgery. That's where my whole team kind of is in there. My nurse is in there with me. Uh, my fellow is in there with me and uh, we're going through all the images, uh, making all the measurements, picking out the uh, um, uh, pertinent images that will be made into a PowerPoint. So my uh, uh, entire least PowerPoint career, you know, PowerPoint started probably what in the late 90s. Um, uh, all of my cases are uh, being made into PowerPoints that then I start studying as well in more detail, uh, usually again, two to three, three weeks before surgery. Uh, so that's probably the most intense personal um, uh, planning is done at that pre-op conference, uh, again, with my uh, fellows, my nurses, and often we have visiting surgeons with us. So obviously there's residents there, well, whoever's in the room basically will be part of that planning process. And then, um, uh, uh, and then the thing I also like to do the morning of surgery, I always block out five to 10 minutes, no matter what I'm doing, you know, I have meetings, conferences, whatever, five or 10 minutes where I basically go through the pertinent images of the patient myself again, uh, just by myself, uh, it's usually now when the patient's kind of getting uh, intubated by anesthesia, the lines are being put in, I sneak away in my, in usually in my office and I just log on and I just go through things uh, uh, fairly quickly in my, um, uh, my mind again, as far as what the pertinent images that I need to be aware of, anatomy, you know, laminectomy defects, the difficult pedicles I may encounter, um, uh, uh, spinal cord shape at the apex. You know, I'm looking at that obviously last two years as, as we recently published. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that so that, uh, I always like to do that. I, I feel very naked going into the OR if I've not done that. So I honestly, if I've for some reason I've had a meeting late meeting or something, I don't get a chance to do that. I actually do that in the OR. I'll scroll through, I will sit, I'll sit down at the desk, you know, and scroll through the pertinent MRI and CT images and x-rays to make sure that I've just done my five to 10 minute kind of pre-check, if you don't mind, like kind of like a flight checklist before a, flying a plane. Um, I, I just feel naked scrubbing in without doing that. So, um, so again, lot from kind of macro, you know, the, the conference uh, planning all the way to micro, you know, the, the, the minute before I scrub in planning, that's kind of how I kind of put it all together. Do you find that you, <clears throat> that even at that last uh, sort of check that you're picking up things that you hadn't, um, I, I'm always amazed at how much I learn every single time I look at the images, but I'm sort of curious, your process is so thorough and complete. Do you feel that, uh, you know, over time you've gotten to the point where by then you, everything goes exactly as planned because you've sort of done the surgery so many times in your head? You would think so, but honestly, Nick, I don't, I, I had a case last week where I realized there were 13 thoracic four lumbar vertebra, you know, <laughs> during that last check. I mean, I've looked at the x-rays probably 20 times and I realized that I wouldn't made it, I may could have done wrong level surgery. And I didn't realize that there was a you know, little rib of T13 when I counted the vertebra. So the bottom line is I, I need to do it. And, I, and the most, the most common thing actually I see in my adult practice is not noting laminectomy defects. And so many of our adult patients have had prior surgeries, laminectomies, and you know, it's critical as you know, during just exposure to know exactly where there's uh, been laminectomy defects. So that's something that I, you're thinking that I would know and have that memorized before I go into surgery. But I find myself again in the last minute, you know, check 
realizing, oh my goodness, four or five has been decompressed on the left side. I got to be careful during my exposure on the left side. I don't give a drill terror. So uh, you would think that I had the process down where I learned nothing more at the last five to 10 minutes, but I can tell you, I almost always learn something else that I really should know. So that's why I still do it, honestly. And that's why I, I don't feel comfortable going in the OR unless I've done it, honestly. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's incredibly valuable and um, uh, sort of makes me glad it's not just me. Um, so uh, yeah, sort of going back to the team, uh, your team has obviously been something that has, has allowed you, because I've heard you talk before about the relationships that you've developed with your neuromonitoring folks and you know your spinal cord saves and things like that. How do you build a team that's composed of a people of, of a group of people who really want to do these long days, one after another, ultra complex, requiring this much focus. I mean, do you have multiple teams? Who's in that team with you in the operating room? Sure. Um, so uh, both in, both at WashU and now in Columbia, I have kind of two teams, one based at the adult hospital and one based at the pediatric hospital. Uh, actually, in St. Louis, honestly, I, I must God, I forget. I've had three teams because I, I operated at the Shriners Hospital weekly as well. Like, so I had three kind of sets of teams I had to build um, at those three respective hospitals. Now it's only two. Um, and I, and I, and I, and thinking about this, honestly, to me, it's, you know, what, how do you build a team? How do you get, you know, someone to kind of follow your, your, your footsteps and then kind of want to work with you. And, and uh, especially again, in, uh, in, in, in these type of cases that aren't, aren't easy often are, are very long and complicated and sometimes things go awry and things don't go perfect. And, how do you, you know, get people to, to buy into this? And I, and I go back to, you know, how do you get people to, um, uh, or how, how do surgeons become uh, kind of good clinicians, get a good uh, clinical practice? You know, the three A's, right? Uh, being affable, available, and uh, able, right? I mean, so I, I think, um, uh, number one, you, you have to be around. I mean, I, you know, I've uh, positioned the patient, you know, uh, during long surgeries, I want to make sure there's you know, I'm, I'm basically there checking the patient before the position. I don't, I don't like kind of just the fellows get started in residence and I show up, you know, kind of when, uh, you know, when it's uh, crunch time, you know, I'm basically, I'm there from the beginning. I've always done that. Um, uh, and I, and I, I think the whole team appreciates that. I, you know, I may obviously let, uh, if I have competent fellows at the end of the year, they're, they're going to do more from the beginning, obviously. And, and, uh, uh, like now I often have two fellows scrub in and expose and get things ready, but, I, but I'm still there checking and making sure before we, first thing starts. So I think kind of being, being around, I think it's, it's helped uh, everyone realize that, you know, this, this patient is important. I mean, you know, it's not, a, it's not a teaching case. This is, you know, someone's brother, sister, uh, you know, son, daughter, whatever that, uh, you know, we need to be around and we need to give our, everyone needs to give our best effort. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and I think that, and then the affability part of it is, you know, you need to be a reasonable person. I mean, no one, you know, no one likes an arrogant surgeon. No one likes someone who's um, uh, 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 onerous in the OR, yells, screams. I mean, you know, uh, uh, we're all in this together. So I, I've hopefully tried to be someone who's um, respects everyone in the operating room and, and, and outside the operating room as well, obviously, but, um, uh, and realize that they all have a role and an important role. So I think if you, if you make them feel important and realize, make them realize that their part is critical in this whole venture that, uh, they'll have a better, better buy into it. And the last thing is that, you know, you, you got to sh show some ability. I think people obviously like to be attracted to, to winners and leaders. And I've been fortunate, you know, to really focus my practice, as you all know, very early on uh, uh, to get, to get good at doing this kind of surgery. And I honestly, I tell people, I don't really think uh, when I was training or even early in my career that I was the best technical surgeon. I, I you know, I, you know, I've scrubbed with other 
attending uh, all the, my my close residents and stuff during training, and I thought I was a you know very good surgeon. I don't think I had uh, abilities beyond anyone else I ever uh, scrubbed with. But uh, what happened was I just got so much darn experience. You know, I really operated four to five days a week, week in and week out for years on end, and so uh, I just got more experience than anybody. And by getting more experience and having, you know, some, uh, some, uh, some God-given talent that I'm very fortunate to have, that's kind of what I think gave me the ability to really hone in and do these complex cases and get people to buy in that, uh, that want to be part of this uh, whole act. So, um, uh, so I think that that's kind of part of it. I think uh, also showing, uh, you know, showing some um, uh, a reward to people or giving some rewards to people who really put out extra effort. I mean, uh, where, whether it's a thank you at the end of the day to everyone uh, uh, that has really put in time and energy into the case uh, to, um, you know, little Christmas uh, gifts and bonuses, whatever. Uh, my, my main team, uh, uh, basically, after you're with me for a year or two, you're, you're going to go to a meeting uh, 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 that, um, that I'm going to host you to, uh, you know, use your SRS or IMAST, or you know, we, we have various meetings that I'll, I'll send my, my committed staff to, um, uh, again, just to buy into the process that, you know, they're part of something special. They're, you know, we're really uh, on the forefront of, of, uh, of expertise in spinal deformity care, and you're, you're helping me uh, be part of that team. So I want you to realize that, um, you know, what, what you're part of. And so that, that's been a part of it as well, just making sure the gratitude towards people that uh, their buying is worthwhile uh, uh, and they are part of something special. And people, I think, have, uh, have bought into that over time. Yeah, that's that's a, ter- a terrific answer. I, I want to um, have a little follow-up question. You mentioned the affability part, and I mean, you know, my interaction with you has always been spectacular. And I'm curious. I've found over the first ten years of my practice that I've gone from being, you know, fi- more fiery at times, especially in bigger cases, uh, certainly related to stress, to a lot more, you know, calm and collected. Um, and I consider my practice to involve reasonably complex spine, but I don't think anybody can sort of hold a candle to what yours is. Have you found over time that your ability to uh, to, to sort of uh, temper your emotions during really challenging portions of cases or really sort of high stress cases has, has improved over time? Uh, oh, definitely. I think that's just part of maturity, right, and, and, and experience in, in the OR. Um, and, and realizing that, you know, most things that um, – uh, will get you irritated and aggravated, you know, early in your career will be, uh, you know, is something that you learn to control. I mean, getting a dural tear, obviously, and again, in the adult world, that's something we, you know, we always try and avoid. It's not ideal, but, you know, it's going to happen. If you do enough adult revision performing surgery, you're going to get dural tears. So you need to know how to deal with it. And now, not that I'm cavalier, not that I, uh, you know, purposely get dural tears, but I, I'm very comfortable now that I know how to manage them. Uh, so that, that's this experience, right? Uh, same thing with neuromonitoring changes, right? I mean, I, I probably would venture to say over the last 20 year, years, I've had more neuromonitoring changes than anyone in the country, uh, right? Uh, now, I'm, I'm, am I proud of that? No, but what it's allowed me to do is really experience, number one, when, you know, when, when I will expect them to happen, i.e., you know, a type three spinal cord on a new spinal cord classification shape and a <laughs> patient with a high deformity angular ratio, right? The, who's, um, uh, you know, who, who's getting a deformity correction. That, that's a very high risk patient. So I kind of go in in that case, knowing that there, that may be an uh, issue. How can I avoid that? You know, do I want to put some temporary fixation on first before I start loosening up the spine? Do I want to you know, compress the convexity of it and shorten the spine before, you know, so I'm, I have, a, I've had, I'm trying to work on plans to avoid getting into trouble, but knowing that I, uh, if I get into trouble, I, you know, I, I, I've, 
that has happened before. I, I know the response typically. And I can tell you the only time that I really get scared in the OR now is that I can't figure out what the problem is. Uh, i.e., you know, someone is bleeding more than they should be. I, you know, the monitoring data is not uh, responding like it should respond after, uh, you know, we've done various maneuvers to, to get the data uh, back. Uh, that, that's when I still get kind of nervous. Uh, and I think deservedly so, right? When things don't make sense or, you know, I, I lose data and it does, doesn't make sense. I can't figure out why. That's pretty rare, but it does happen. And that's the time that I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't lose my cool, but I, I get a very frustrated still. Uh, and that's probably just the perfectionist in all of us coming out, right? I mean, I think that would be true of anyone who does this kind of work and is a perfectionist. But um, again, I think with, with experience, um, uh, it certainly makes you a more mature and, and calmer surgeon. Although I can tell you, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about complications probably later. That doesn't make any the complications any easier to swallow. Uh, if, if anything, Nick, you know, having difficulty in the OR to me is is harder for me now than it was earlier in my career. Because that's not supposed to happen now. You right? feel like you should have figured uh, it out. I, sure, I should have figured it yeah. out. I'm the expert. That's why people are coming to me. That's why fellows are training with me because they want to see things go smoothly and see how things are done uh, without complications or without issues. So uh, <laughs> it's a kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, uh, you know, although I've, I've, um, I've had uh, my share of complications and issues that I've had to solve in the OR uh, or post-op, it doesn't make them any easier because uh, number one, I'm supposed to be able to prevent them from happening now, right? Or certainly solve them immediately. Uh, and it, it, you know, that in, in real life and operating on, on real humans, it just doesn't happen that way, right? I mean, every every patient's a little bit unique. And so, um, so that's, the, I, but again, that's something I, I, I'm well aware of. Uh, it's something that you just have to kind of understand if you do complex surgery that, uh, uh, as my wife says, you know, the, 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 some of these patients you have to realize have, uh, you know, untreatable cancer and you you can't, you know, cure right. everyone with that. You can do your best and you, you're, you have to do your best, but, um, uh, you know, that doesn't mean everyone's going to turn out absolutely perfectly. And so you have to have the kind of mindset that you just have to do your best and, and then hope for the best. Yeah, that's, uh, that's terrific. Uh, and, and I've got a question, a little bit of a follow-up question in a, in a little bit, but I want to come back to that. Um, I'm curious how you balance that complexity on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is really sort of a question about what your week looks like. And probably for you, it's what your month looks like. But um, for example, I've got a uh, probably one and a half level VCR that I'm doing next Monday. And that's like a really big case for a couple of weeks for, for a guy you know who's got, again, a, a reasonably complex practice. But for you, you probably uh, are, are doing these things on a more regular basis. How do you manage the uh, sort of the ebbs and flows of these big cases and the mental uh, stamina that's required on a regular basis? Yeah, so I think um, part of it is, is, is trying to manage my schedule. I certainly, you know, when I, when I operated five days a week, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I ever did five VCR cases in a row, Nick. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I will manage my schedule. I mean, I, I will do, you know, two or three cases like that in a week. Uh, I, I look at them as three column osteotomies. So my goal is never to do more than three, three column osteotomies in one week. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to control my schedule that way with my, with my uh, uh, clinical nurse, Angie. Um, uh, you know, so she, she, we kind of look out for each other as far as well, how the scheduling is done. Um, so, you know, I, I want to be reasonable uh, uh, in, in that regards. And now that I'm operating probably more consistently three days a week, occasionally four days, I'm pretty much operating three days a week consistently now. I mean, one or two of those days will be 
much more difficult cases. And uh, the third day will be a, you know, quote, an, an easier day, you know, and then a non three column osteotomy day. Um, so I, I do try and micromanage it a bit like that. Um, and, and, and that's, that's worked well. Um, because you're right, it uh, uh, is something where, uh, you know, even in uh, times when I have done uh, three complicated three column osteotomies in one week, I'm, I, I get through that fine, interestingly enough, but uh, I crash then, you know, late in the week or on the weekends, I found honestly. So I was, I've been, I'd be worthless on the weekend then. So, I mean, we're all human. I mean, you know, you're, you're, as you know, when you're in a surgery, your adrenaline's flowing, your cortisol's going, uh, but we, we, you run out of that eventually, right? We all run out of that. And um, so, uh, and that's not, that's also not healthy, right? We know long-term having a high cortisol level is not, not, not healthy. So um, I've, I've tried to manage that as best I can through, uh, you know, just looking at my weekly schedule and, and um, uh, trying to, you know, uh, level it out a little bit uh, on average as best I can. Um, so I, I, mean, I think I've been pretty good about that, honestly. Although, um, and interestingly enough, um, uh, I show a slide on my three column osteotomies. I'm actually doing less now than I had even 10 years ago. And it's, and it's not because my case complexity is less. It's that I figured out how to do these cases without doing three column osteotomies. Halos. And and, yeah. That. Exactly. Yeah. Your halos and posterior osteotomies and just temporary fixation, three, two days, two stage surgery instead of one stage, you know, when you can just get a little, you know, more correction uh, spanned over two operative days instead of getting a lot of one operative day. So I've learned over time how to avoid these, uh, these marked corrections, you know, that uh, were realigning the spine and spinal cord in, uh, in one whole fell swoop uh, and, and separating it into, uh, you know, a, a, a longer procedure, like obviously the, long, the epitome of that is halo traction, which is, you know, works wonderful uh, for appropriate cases. And, uh, and then even two-stage surgery, just, you know, getting uh, a multitude rounds of correction over, uh, you know, two eight-hour surgeries instead of all of it in one 10-hour surgery. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm managing my practice differently than I did even 10 years ago with, uh, I think, making it easier on myself and probably safer for the patient, honestly. Uh, as we're looking at some of our data, honestly, it's, 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 it's probably safer for the patient. And that may be in part because it's safer for you because of the, you know, that you do get mentally right, fatigued. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's, that, exactly. I, there's some threshold I think we all have. It's different, you know, for some, probably for people who do certain procedures, it's an hour. And, you know, if you're an ACL guy and your ACLs are taking you long, you start to get sort of mentally fatigued from that. Uh, but, you know, for, for, I think for complex fun, probably there's a number where you start to really uh, taper off over top of it. Right. Right. For me, it's about, uh, you know, 10, 11 hours after 10, 11 hours in the aura and no, not, to me, nothing really good happens after that point. <laughs> it's like 2am. So, yeah. Well, honestly, that's like, you know, that, that's when I, you know, I, we published on two staging complex surgery. I, you know, I, I didn't hesitate with obviously initially it was blood loss because before anti-fibrinolytics, you know, well, we, especially in adults, we, we couldn't do you know, T2 to sacrums and multi-level three column osteotomies in adults because of, you know, excessive blood loss. Uh, and then it became on time. You know, once we had antifibrinolytics, then time became an issue where, you know, if we couldn't get anything and everything finished within 10, 11 hours. I just started two staging things because I realized I wasn't at my best, you know, at, uh, at the end of the day when I needed to be at my best, putting the, you know, the correction on and then closing down the osteotomy. So, uh, you know, it's just, I think it, you're right. It, 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 although it was done for patient safety and the, it probably was a bit of survival mode in my, and preservation mode that, that made me go that route as well. If, if I'm honest with myself, uh, Nick. Yeah. Now I'm curious, I, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. Um, your practice uh, being what it is, 
how do you counsel surgeons who want to build complexity into their practice? And this may be your fellows, but this may be visiting uh, uh, folks. And, and when I mean complexity, I don't solely mean, you know, adding VCR, three-column osteotomies into it. And obviously, you sort of really built that from the ground up. But also just patient complexity, um, you know, a, a larger referral practice. Um, how does that kind of thing come about and how do you counsel your, the people you're talking to nowadays about that? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, every, it's different for everyone, but, um, uh, you know, uh, the fellows we train now, when they finish their fellowship in our program, their technical skills are simply outstanding and way far ahead of where I was when I finished my fellowship. Right. And I'm sure you've seen that in their trainees as well. So, um, so they're, they're starting at a, at a different level from a technical perspective. What they don't have, obviously, is uh, they don't have all the theory down yet. They don't have all the workflow. They don't have their team built. You know, in the OR, as you know, you can be the best surgeon in the world, but without a team assisting you in the OR, you're going to struggle. So that's what they haven't uh, done yet. So a lot of it is, uh, I think, uh, for the fellows who obviously are in our program, they, they see the teams we built. Uh, to help to assist us to, to to do these kind of cases, and they realize, and we talk to them about, you know, obviously, and it's pretty obvious they need to uh, get their team built, you know, before they start um, uh, entertaining doing these kind of cases. For visitors, it's the same thing. They realize that, you know, uh, it is important that you know that the scrub nurse who's with you, you know, doesn't take an hour break and have someone else scrubbing who doesn't know how the setup is going and. And, you know, when you're trying to keep things efficient, I mean, they realize you have to really have a, a committed team uh, that anesthesia is not flooding the patient with fluids. And and um, you know, your, your assistant obviously knows exactly what what uh, what to do when your scrub nurse is efficient and every you know, neuro monitoring team is on board and uh, everything's going perfectly from that. So they, they realize that, you know, team building is, is probably as important uh, as your technical abilities are to doing more complex surgery. So I think everyone kind of gets that. Uh, for for um, a lot of the visitors and even my fellows, I think the key uh, to, to doing tough cases uh, early on, though, is just getting proper help, right? I mean, uh, once you get your team built, um, uh, uh, you know, having a, a, a doing co-surgeon surgery, you know, having two attendings do, especially the more difficult parts of the surgery, that's been a logical extension of what's uh, evolved over the last decade or so, right? That's, there's a lot of publications on that. Um, I think that's, that's critical, obviously, uh, uh, for young surgeons and also more mid-level surgeons who are trying to uh, up their game and do more complex cases. Just get someone who's got you know additional expertise uh, to help you uh, on some of these cases, and it's going to decrease your stress. You know, you have two, uh, uh, two minds working on one. I know someone has to be in control, though. I, you know, I think the, the going into surgery, it has to be well delineated who's who's in charge. Because sometimes you come to a fork in the road, and someone has to make a decision. So, uh, I, I think you know uh, that has to be sorted out ahead of time. But I think there's a lot of advantages to having. Um, you know, a, a, a co-surgeon in, in uh, helping with uh, difficult cases when you're trying to increase the complexity of what you're doing. Yeah. And how uh, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the fellows a little bit and, and their skill. How do you, you know, obviously um, having a, you know, having Mike Vitale on their side of the table, even with a, your, one of your top fellows, there's going to be a difference there. So how do you balance that education of your fellows with accomplishing a safe, complex spine surgery, especially sort of at the, the higher end of complexity for you, wherever that may lie. 
Yeah, well, I can tell you um, uh, what I do is, the, you know, my fellows are my first assistant from day one. Um, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't do co-ascending surgery. I mean, I very, very rarely. I mean, I, I just operated with Pete Angevine, my neurosurgical colleague, a couple weeks ago, just because he saw a patient first, and then the patient saw me for a second opinion and wanted me to do the surgery, but I, I got Pete involved. It was a complex uh uh, a VCR with some ventral dural scarring with, with, uh, predictably we, we had no dura eventually at the end of the decompression. So he helped me repair that. But, but honestly, I, I can count on one hand in the last 10 years, you know, that I've had another attending with me in the OR. So 99.9% .9 of what I do is with the fellow from, from day one, um, of the fellowship. Uh, so, uh, but again, you know, I'm, I'm there from the beginning of the case, you know, basically it's, uh, they're doing their side from the beginning, from beginning of the fellowship, they got to be prepared for that. So, you know, we run uh, some cadaver labs and make sure they're up to speed on, on uh, screw placement and things like that, you know, before they start the fellowship, but it's, you know, it's go live on day one. So they got to be up for that. Um, and they realize that when they, when they sign up for the fellowship, um, you know, obviously I'm not going to put on a. The most complex case the first week of the fellowship also <laughs> I, I manage that you know i look at the look at the the august schedule right is always slightly lighter than uh than september you know, than the rest of the year but um uh but you know i but i you know, i don't i can't dummy it down too much i don't have that many you know very straightforward 50 degree curves that i operate in on so uh uh so I, i've been very fortunate you know that maybe with uh, uh what will happen though i you know i'll go i'll just plan to be in the or longer that day you know, you know instead of a case going seven, eight hours, maybe it goes nine or 10 hours. I mean, we just go a little slow, right? You know, I said, this is not, we're not in this for speed because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, no one is going to care whether that case took you an hour longer, as long as obviously medically the patient's stable, if you uh, avoid a complication. You know, if, if you go faster but have a complication, all that you're going to talk about is a complication in M&M, right? You're not going to, you don't do M&M because you took a little bit longer on a case. Right. You do M&M &M because you had a complication in that case, technically, that that something happened that shouldn't have happened. Right. So that's what I tell the fellows that, uh, um, you know, basically this is not, you know, you're not on the set speed records, especially early in the fellowship. I mean, efficiency will come with time. Uh, the key right in the beginning is to do safe surgery. And, um, uh, and you know, so we're going to take our time. Here's what we're going to do. You know, I'm going to do my side first. You're going to basically mirror what I do on your side. And we're getting this done. And, um, and fortunately, uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to have just outstanding fellows uh, the course of my 28-year career. And so uh, I've never really had um, an issue where that's gone awry on me. So that's why I still do it. Um, uh, but again, I've just been very fortunate. And, and you know, the fellows we've had are, have been a big contribution to my, to my practice, obviously, and my success. So uh, I love that. And I actually am close friends with several of your former fellows. Um, what do you think makes a really great spinal deformity fellow right now in your practice? And has that changed over time? Do you feel that that, that you've that that has changed as your practice has changed? Yeah, I think uh, probably the most important attribute of a great fellow is being interested in what we're doing. I mean, not everyone wants to do complex spinal deformity surgery. So if you have no interest in doing this, you know, it, it's not going to be a fun rotation, right? So luckily that's weeded out through the selection process. Everyone knows what they're getting into now with fellowships, obviously. Uh, you know, anyone applying to our fellowship realizes they're going to spend a fair amount of time with someone like me. So that that's uh, so that's a given. Um, honestly, I think uh, it, it is nice. And we learned this early on from when we started training neurosurgeons who had just tremendous, you know, technical experience prior to starting the fellowship uh, that, uh, you know, it, it is nice to have, you know, a thousand reps of spine surgery under your belt before you start a fellowship with us versus a typical orthopedic resident who may have 100, 200 cases at most. I mean, some of these times even less, right? And it's certainly not as, as primary surgeon. Remember, a lot of the neurosurgeons, they're primary surgeons uh, uh, at their institution, uh, their chief resident year. They're, they're, you know, they're running their own OR. So, 
that that you know that was an eye-opening experience that really has led me to believe that you know training for orthopedic spine uh, surgeons has to ch change eventually and that's why so many are are doing uh, more than one fellowship uh, you know all, all three of our orthopedic uh, fellows this year are doing more than one fellowship and we had one of our Michael Battalion, our current advanced pediatric fellow this is his third fellowship he's done three years of fellowship as an orthopedic surgeon in the spine yeah so um uh because again they, they you know they're, they're realizing that there's so much to learn and again uh the neurosurgeons who are getting 70 percent of the residency training in spine are starting a fellowship at such an advanced level of technical ability that uh, you know they're again the orthopedic surgeons do great honestly it's, it's great to see our orthopedic fellows during the year they they improve so dramatically that at the end of the year that they actually end up uh, really, where the, where the neurosurgical fellows end up, they end up at the same spot, but their their acceleration, their slope is so much greater, right? So much steeper, because uh, it has to be because yeah. the neurosurgeons start at such a higher level. But what 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 the orthopedic fellows miss out a bit is as those small tangible points that you can pick up when you're not worrying about the technical things that you have to learn as an orthopedic fellow, right? Because the neurosurgical fellows always have already had those mastered. You know, it's like uh, it's seeing things through a different lens, in other words, right? And so the orthopedic fellows do great and uh, um, and end up at, guess, at the same spot, but they don't pick up some of the salient points that some of the neurosurgical fellows pick up because, again, their, their experience before they start the fellowship. So that's why, ideally, I think, um, you know, we need to go to a plastic surgery model where once an orthopedic surgeon during residency decides they want to be a spine surgeon, they, they should exit out of orthopedic surgery and do two or three years of spine surgery. I'm pretty convinced about that. Uh, uh, going, seeing now, you know, training both orthopedic and neurosurgical fellows the last 15 years, uh, nearly equally, uh, equal amounts. So, um, uh, so that's a long way to answer, but I just kind of want to bring it out to make sure I, I emphasize that point. Um, and that's why yeah, I think you're going to see more, uh, especially in the adult side, orthopedic, um, fellows doing more than one fellowship, uh, you know, if they want to master complex, uh, adult deformity, MIS techniques and all this other, uh, all these other things it's, it's hard to do that in one year it really is uh especially if uh, you know you haven't had a lot of great exposure to that in residency and it, obviously it varies you know residency by residency by residency but uh most residents especially if you come from a uh, a fellowship heavy residency often the residents you know don't get as much in uh enhanced training as if uh, you know you're you're uh, in a place that doesn't have many uh, spine fellows. Yeah, absolutely. So, that makes sense. Right? It's kind of double, double edged sword, right? It's kind of a double edged sword. Um, yeah, it, it was funny. I talked uh, before this uh, interview with Josh Pays, and his comment was, Man, I wish I could go back now. Um, and I think that that probably speaks to your point. He said, You know, yep. when you're doing it, it's so intense and it's such a great experience, but you want to pause practice for a couple of years and come on back. And I think that, that your point on, you know, just reps in general, uh, I'd love to go back and train again with Dan and the group out in TSRH after doing what I, what I've had the opportunity to do now, I think I'd have, you know, uh, get even more out of it. And that's exactly why, you know, 10 years ago, um, uh, uh, my fellows, several of my fellows came back and said, I want to spend another six months with you because it was like drinking from a fire hose during the four months I spent with you as a regular fellow. So that's why I started an advanced deformity fellowship. Now, I've subsequently have disbanded that for various reasons, but for what, 10 years or so, I had two fellows with me, a regular fellow and an advanced deformity fellow. And it was really, I didn't request that. It was really past fellows who requested spending more time doing complex deformity. They're, they're the ones that requested uh, uh, that uh, additional fellowship training, not me. I gotcha. So let me ask you this uh, about that, because, um, you know, obviously there are people like Josh, like Mike Kelly, like Hanjo Kim, who are all good friends of mine um, and have great practices where they have the opportunity to walk into a reasonably 
complex uh, deformity practice. But I, I can't imagine that's everybody who comes out. And what, you know, if, if you have a, a fellow who's going to be graduating to a group where they're going to be the deformity guy or gal, yes, but they're not necessarily going to walk into a super busy deformity practice. And at the beginning, they're going to be doing, you know, single level decompression infusions and things like that. How do you counsel them? Um, or maybe have you figured out a way so that the majority of the people who come out are walking into a practice that they want? Yeah, no, unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, as you know, uh, most, most of our fellows, even if they go into academia, are, are not doing you know, the, the type of cases on a routine basis that they're doing in our fellowship, whether it's, you know, my kind of cases or the robotic cases with Ron Lehman or, or the complex cervical cases that Dan Rude performs. Uh, and what I tell them is uh, don't lose hope because I, I go back to my own beginning. Basically, um, uh, for eight years or so, I did everything in adult spine. I did single level ACDFs. I did single level lumbar decompressions, degenerative spinal lysis, trauma, infection, tumor. And again, it just made me a, a more thorough surgeon that, uh, you know, when I, the way I look at it is, uh, especially in adult deformity where you do a lot of decompressions and in inner bodies and, uh, you know, we work around the dura all the time. That's really, it's, it's just a constellation of, of several degenerative cases wrapped into one. That's really what adult mm -hmm. deformity is. Uh, so, and I, I approach it like that. Basically, after I expose T4 to sacrum, I pack off T4 to L3 and I do everything L4 to sacrum. I, you know, do I need to do decompressions there? Do I do my T lifts? So I, you know, what do I need to do from L4 to sacrum? I take care of that. Uh, and I, and the ilium, I put my S2AI screws in, whatever I need to do. Then I pack that off and I work from T12 to L4. What do I need to do there? Do I need to do posterior osteotomies? Do I need to do T lifts? Whatever I need to do, put my screws in, whatever there. I, and I pack that off and I just go up and then I do my thoracic portion. So I just broken up into various um, uh, uh, components. And just like I did when I did separate components of degenerative uh, thoracic or lumbar or lumbosacral deform, uh, degenerative uh, uh, cases. So, uh, and you get efficient at that. You get very efficient at that. Now, the, I must admit, though, the one huge advantage I had in it coming out that obviously got me uh, 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 kind of enraptured by spine deformity was my Shriners exposure. Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I got to give a shout out to Perry Schenecker. So basically when I was a fellow with Keith Bridwell, uh, back in the, uh, 1990, 91 period, Perry Schenecker, um, uh, uh, and I, uh, started, uh, and I was with him at Shriners and, and, uh, you know, I, one of my, uh, main role models and mentors in my career. And, uh, he started talking to me that, you know, he was doing spine at the time uh, at the Shriner, he was doing CD and, and everything, you know, he was uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, complex hip and knee surgery, foot surgery and, and spine surgery. And uh, we had several discussions and he basically said that, Larry, you know, I, I'm, I'm realizing that, uh, you know, uh, spine is becoming more complex and I'm going to have a hard time being a master of everything, you know, being master of uh, pediatric hip surgery, being master of pediatric foot surgery uh, and everything else. And, uh, and uh, so uh, basically, uh, I think you're going to, if you want to devote your practice to the scoliosis and pediatric scoliosis, you know, I'm, I want you to take over the Shriners spine program for me. So that basically that, that was uh, handed to me the first day post fellowship. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, how, how lucky can you get right? Um, um, so, and at the same time, honestly, in addition to that, um, I started uh, going to his Saturday morning spine clinics in his private practice at the children's hospital through my fellowship. So that day one of my, um, uh, attending, uh, uh, ship. Uh, I also had about 30 cases of his, uh, private practice, uh, to do, uh, that were scheduled, uh, because he handed me that as well. So basically he stopped doing spine surgery the day I started doing spine surgery in pediatric spine. That's incredible. So, I mean, I, I'm so indebted to him. He's uh, such a great man. And I want to, again, I give a shout out to, uh, to Wally's done for me because he really, 
I think launched my career. I mean, I, obviously I'm, I'll, I'll give a ton of credit to Keith Bridwell as well, but as far as launching my career and getting, getting me the opportunity to, again, to start doing two minimum of two scoliosis cases a week, pediatric deformity cases a week. Uh, that was because of, of um, uh, Perry Schenecker. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, all my early research uh, 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 potential uh, that, that, that I started doing was all the cases I was doing at the Shriners. Um, so that, that really was a, a huge springboard towards getting me really excited about doing deformity. Again, as I mentioned, in my adult practice, I was taking care of everything. I was taking care of a lot of degenerative disease and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, everything else on call. And I really didn't have it, uh, an adult deformity practice till probably seven, eight years into practice. Hmm. But I had the pediatric spine deformity practice from day one. And that's, I think, why we're talking today. Honestly, I don't think we'd be talking today Nick, if that wasn't the case. That yeah, no, that's a, great, that's a great point. Well, well Perry has been uh, a great mentor to me and his son, John, is one of my closest friends. So I, I love hearing that. Um, great people. Yeah. Great, great family. Great people. And, you, know. you know, it brings up uh, w- one of the questions that I wanted to hit on. Um, and I'm going to call out uh, one of my mentors, Dan Cicado, who I, I think technically is as talented a person as I've worked with. Um, and I remember going to a conference that he was at with Professor Reinhold Gans, who is uh, probably uh, your counterpart in the hip preservation world. Sure, of course, right. Well aware, well aware of him. Yeah. Tremendous uh, guy. I think, and, and uh, I think maybe it's his, uh, his European flair, but he basically told Dan that he didn't think that you, that a surgeon could accomplish excellence in both uh, hip preservation and complex spine. So I'm curious on your thoughts on pediatric orthopedists of whom I'm one who perform non-spine work and then having to have a big interest in more complex deformity work. Again, probably not to the extent that you're doing, especially in your adult practice. But, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, honestly, I think um, ideally um, it would make sense that people focus only on one thing if you really want to be your best at it. That doesn't mean you can't be 95% uh, good at something uh, if you're talented and committed, right? Uh, and, you know, and you're an example of that, Nick. Uh, and so is Dan Sacato, uh, who does still, I believe, right, co- complex hip and complex spine. Yeah, and, sp- and pediatric trauma and other exactly, stuff. Exactly, yeah. right, and other things. So that, that doesn't preclude you, I think. And then Michael Vitale is another. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, his, his, his elective practice is 99% spine, but he takes call. He still does other things uh, occasionally. Or, I, you know, Lily, for 28 years, I've, I've not, except for a couple of years when I had, had to take orthopedic trauma call, uh, I mean, I've, uh, everything I've done has been uh, spine surgeries. I've been I've been very fortunate with that. Um, so I think that you know it doesn't preclude you being the uh, uh, the best surgeon you can be and handling very complex spine problems. But I think um, at least in in, in my uh, for my skill level, I I I am very very um, uh, uh, pleased and very lucky that I was able to focus only on complex spine surgery because I don't think I would be the same surgeon. Uh, uh, if I did other things, uh, again, that may not be true for everyone, but it's true for me. So, uh, that's the way I look at it. It's a very individual thing, I think Nick, and, um, and everyone has to answer that, uh, that call. I think also, you know, uh, I'm a little bit unique in that I do both peds and adults, uh, the complex stuff. And I think, um, that, I think the symbiotic kind of crossover has helped me as well. You know, when I do it, I've done three and four year old complex kids and I've done, you know, 80 year old complex adults and everything in between. So I've, I've had a pretty fortunate practice from that perspective. Uh, that also that, 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 uh, that breadth of practice has allowed me to focus only on spine deformity, which is not easy, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, the two things that have allowed me to do that, number one has been that I, I'll take care of any, any 
patient any age with a spine deformity problem. Um, um, uh, uh, and number two, that I basically was fortunate to focus in on it at a time when subspecialization became kind of in vogue and, and the internet allowed patients to kind of uh, do searching and, and travel if they wanted to for their spinal deformity care. I, I hit it right at the right juncture in the late 90s, early 2000s, right when the internet became the way that uh, uh, patients often sought out uh, uh, advanced care for, of, of medical problems. So I was, you know, I really hit the, the sweet spot in that. And that's what allowed me, I think, to focus on, again, gain a, you know, a national, national spinal deformity practice, allow me to, to, to do complex cases on a routine basis. But um, so and at, at the end of the day, I think, uh, um, you know, given a choice, I think if, if, if someone would ask me their opinion, you know, if, if you have an opportunity to focus only on spine surgery only in complex spine should i do that or should i do everything i, I would suggest you you know if you have the ability to focus on complex spine only uh, the, that you should do that but if you don't that doesn't mean you can't do complex spine but um i think you're, you know, you're gonna have to put a little more effort on it and and i think you're gonna have to keep your eye on the, on the ball a little more is what i'd say so um and again people like you and dan Sicato and others are examples of that but you know interestingly i mean uh you know most of the people who uh, are again academically inclined are people who really focus their elective practice on spine surgery, right? Whether you're in the adult world or the pediatric world, or are making the advances in spine surgery, or making the advances in spinal deformity surgery, those are the ones who are focusing on that. I think uh, that, that's maybe my point, right? That doesn't mean that other people can't do a great job uh, and do you know 99% of what uh, what uh, someone like I can do, but I think that the the people who are um, uh, pushing our, our uh, profession forward are those the ones that are focusing only on that uh, that area. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think it's a great point. And it's something I think that anybody who wants to subspecialize within pediatric orthopedics, you know, certainly struggles at some level with, because we were all trained, di uh, you know, different than the neurosurgeons you were uh, referring to earlier, to be generalists at the beginning of our residency. And then if you're a pediatric orthopedist, you're a generalist at the beginning of your fellowship and then sort of working your way through. So I've dropped a lot of things over years and end up focusing, right. you know, probably the vast majority of my practice on spine, but I still, you know, I still take care of hip things. And I think that my practice is mirrors Dan's in a lot of ways, which is fun, but you're right. Um, I think that there are some limitations to that. Quick point. Uh, so Dan Sicato asked me the same question when he was trying to, when he was young in his career, you know, should I focus only on spine or should, can I do hip and spine? I told him he should focus only on spine. And you ask him that. Now, hopefully he listens to this because I, I actually told him that there's no way that you can do both complex spine and a complex hip. But he's, he proved us, he proved me wrong and proved uh, uh, other people wrong as well. So uh, he's, he's a, that guy's a guy. He's just, that's, I think, mean, just shows how talented Dan is, really what it shows. Because uh, I, I couldn't do it, but Dan can. So. So I, I want to lead into um, a couple more questions about uh, uh, folks on sort of complexity within surgery and finish up uh, uh, with this section on, on your thoughts on navigation. But before we get there, I'm curious because, you know, you and you, you talked about this earlier a little bit with with your discussion with your wife um, and how she's viewed it. And I rely on my wife a lot for this. But clearly you're a perfectionist in a lot of ways. We all are. Um, but complex spine is so challenging to be a, a perfectionist in because even the best cases, and, and, you know, you and I recently were on, uh, were discussing some stuff through the harm study group about short versus long fusions, but even the best cases may have require a long fusion case goes great. You end up fusing long or they have a persistent deformity that that's just not, uh, able to be overcome easily, or they go on to pseudo, even if the case goes great. How do you stay a perfectionist in that? Well, I think we just owe it to the patients to do our best. Nick. To me, perfection is just is doing your best. I mean, 
if I've done my best, um, um, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're all human. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my best. And if I do my best, then, uh, that's all I have to offer. I mean, with, you know, within our limits. Now I think, think though, um, uh, you know, doing our best changes over time. And the challenge that I've given to myself is what, you know, doing my best yesterday is not doing my best tomorrow because I want to be better tomorrow. And that's, what's driven me to be academically, uh, prolific in my career, because that has allowed me, I, at least personally to realize, you know, what, the, how I can do a better job on the same patient tomorrow that I did uh, yesterday. So that's been my drive to be academically, uh, again, involved and, um, uh, and, uh, and with clinical research, because I, I, I honestly feel after 20 years, I'm, I'm the best surgeon I ever was right now. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have my hand-eye coordination still, and um, uh, I think I'm pretty efficient. I'm not the fastest surgeon, but I think I'm very efficient. And again, I've, as I mentioned, I've got a great team with me, but I've got so much experience that's and 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 uh, data that's driving me to do things um, differently today than I did even a couple of years ago. Uh, so I think the so that strive for perfectionism is is something that uh, you know we have to keep in mind that is constantly has to change because, uh, if, if, you know, if you're, if you're doing the same thing, uh, now that you did five years ago, you're, you're not really a perfectionist because you, you, you have to find better ways to do things. Cause you're right. We, we haven't solved all this yet, right? There's no perfect solution for spinal deformity care yet. Right. Um, so that's kind of the way I answer that. That's, that's how, even though, uh, um, I am a perfectionist that, uh, I, I still think, uh, because I, I, I do try and do, um, um, things better uh, every time I do them that uh, even if they don't work out, then I, guess what? That's more information to try and do it even better the next time, right? That goes in the database uh, that I did at this time three years ago. It, you know, it didn't work. I pseudo. So what, what do I need to do on this next case? That's first quite similar to that to, to not uh, have it pseudo or to not have a residual deformity. So uh, that's how I think uh, being a perfectionist helps you uh, strive to do a better job on, on the next patient. Yeah, and I think I mean the innovations that you've developed through all of this uh, have have really driven things forward, and and I think uh, have clearly uh, show the fact that you have focused on the things that you've been able to take away and improve future patient care rather than focusing on the on the hardships that that occurred um, as they come along. So I, I think that's terrific. I'm curious, you know, with with all of that, one of the things that you've been relatively steadfast in your belief in has been a the use of a freehand approach to placement of pedicle screws. Um, and your junior partner, Ron, who uh, I also know reasonably well, uh, has has really been given or has has built his career uh, up in a way that that does incorporate a lot of na navigation robotics. And you, you referenced this a minute ago. Um, what are your thoughts right now on navigation robotics, especially as it as it pertains to the fellows here training, to the future of you know, sort of our our younger generation of folks? Sure. Um, uh, basically, uh, navigation robotics are only going to improve. Uh, so everyone who's training now needs to get experience with that, needs to get facile with that, because uh, uh, it's only going to improve. And, and and at some point. Uh, uh, there's a possibility even I'm going to use those technologies. Uh, if there, if those technologies allows me to be a better, safer, and faster surgeon, I'm going to use those technologies. Now, currently, and I, and I don't know, since I don't use the technologies, I, I basically ask my fellows every, every few months, you know, basically after we finish a case, you know, if I, if I use navigation and robotics, would that case have gone faster and better? And, and to, to a fellow, they, they still tell me the answer is no. Uh, but when the answer is possibly or no, the answer is yes, then guess what? I mean, I'm going to start using those technologies. Uh, and, uh, and that definitely is the way we are heading. Um, 
you know, right now, I think the limitation is that, um, uh, you know, you have to, uh, 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 you know, get uh, scans that are, 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 are recent or are, are live to be able to assess the anatomy as it's laying on, on the OR table, whether you're lateral supine or whatever, prone. And, um, and uh, you know, and the body's moving a little bit. So there's a little movement that's occurring. And if you've got a tiny pedicle, especially in a you know, severe deformity. I mean, the, 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 those, the, it hasn't been shown that that's still going to be as accurate potentially as, as, um, as a freehand technique if you're used to that. I mean, you know, whatever you're used to. So, but again, that technology is only going to continue to improve. Uh, I, I can certainly, we can all envision a day where, you know, a, a, a robot comes in, you know, a, a 36 hand robot comes in and puts 36 screws in, in the, in the span of one minute, right? Why, why can't that happen? If we can, you know, yeah. I own a Tesla, you know, basically my Tesla, you know, auto drives my car on the highway for me for 50 miles straight. I came home Sunday from um, uh, from a, a place in the Hamptons and for 50 miles. I didn't uh, you know, I basically I didn't touch the car. I mean, I, I, you have to keep your hand on the steering wheel. Otherwise, it beeps to remind you. But it drove for 50 straight miles. So, I mean, That's if you can yeah. have that technology, why can't we have a robot put in? 36 screws simultaneously into a spine. It, the, the, the technology is there. The problem is that, um, uh, you know, the, the resources put into that that need, that need to be put into that by the implant companies has not been done yet, the, the, uh, the, the uh, R&D, because, uh, you know, they got to see um, the re you know, return on investment or ROI on that, right? And so, um, but, but, but it's going to happen, right? It's logical. Um, and so the question is when. And um, and uh, and how quickly will others adopt that technology? But I, I I'm a firm believer that 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 is going to happen. Um, I, you know, I'm actually think that this pandemic is going to set us back a bit because it's going to take. You know, there's there's a, there's going to be a cost to that, Nick. And and uh, fortunately, yeah. uh, the cost of society society is going to have to deal with uh, you know cleaning up the pandemic for a while and for healthcare. So I think this is going to set us back a, a year, a couple of years maybe with that. But um, uh, but I, I'm I'm not anti navigation or um, or robotics at all. Honestly, I'm I'm pro it. Uh, but at this point in time, uh, from when I, what, what people who scrub with me tell me that it, it's just going to slow me down and it's not going to make me a better surgeon, but if it made me a better surgeon, I would use it tomorrow. Yeah, I, I've found the same thing. I'm, uh, we're in constant discussion. We've got a lot of navigation and robotics down here, as you know, uh, at children's and I ask them constantly and they say, if you're doing a 50 degree right thoracic curve, it is really slick. But when you get up into bigger curves and more complex deformities, it's a lot more challenging. And that may just be the, the technology that we have. And I think that it's certainly on the horizon um, and, and people are working with it uh, that in bigger and bigger cases. So I think it's not far off. So I wanted to move on um, and I'm going to preface the next section uh, of questions, which is on safety by the fact that if I remember correctly, your uh, presidency within the SRS was about 2011. Am I right? That's correct. Great memory. Yeah. Correct. So I, uh, that was my first SRS. I had actually gotten a paper accepted the year before in Kyoto, but, um, Dan, who was on the paper, uh, I, I don't think was super excited to send his, his brand new fellow to Kyoto. <laughs> so my first that. real one was, uh, was in, uh, was in Louisville. And I remember your talk, uh, your keynote talk because it was on safety. Um, and, you know, it struck me. It struck me then. It strikes me now. And I think I've learned so much more in the in the past ten years of practice about how vital that is. Um, uh, partly in, because the complications that I've had are my complications, and they're not you know somebody else's complications. Um, and I'm curious how you deal with complications at this point in your career. I'm sure you recommend you remember your first neurologic complication. I'm curious how you rebounded that. 
and just maybe a, a, a discussion on how that's built over your career, how, you, how you've grown through those complications. Sure. I mean, as, as you know, the old adage, the only way you avoid complications is not to operate, right? And that's absolutely true, right? So that, that's a true statement. Uh, so my first neurologic complication was probably four or five months into my practice that a complex neurofibromatosis patient at the Shriners Hospital on a Monday uh, and um, anterior and posterior, everything went well. The data was fine during the surgery. Uh, X-rays looked good at the end of surgery. Patient woke up. Uh, you know, no one leaves my OR without a, a wake-up test of the lower extremities. Uh, the wake-up was fine. A patient went to the um, recovery room at our Shriners Hospital, and and uh, I left the hospital about seven thirty, eight o'clock at night, and uh, saw the patient before I left. The patient was doing fine, moving fine, and. I uh, came in next morning at 6 a.m. for my next surgery, and the uh, patient was paraplegic. Um, and uh, basically, a, you know, probably a vascular infarct. You know, uh, this is 1992. Um, and looking at now the records, you know, the blood pressure went down a little bit at night and didn't get uh, bumped up, and the and, uh, patient lost neurologic function and never, re never returned. So I was devastated. Um, uh, you know, I had to cancel my case that day. Um, uh, I, I just, uh, I was very, very devastated, as, as you can imagine. Um, and so I talked to, you know, Perry Schenecker, I talked to Keith Birdwell, and Keith Birdwell had me call Rhonda Wald. And I always remember Rhonda Wald, uh, uh, you know, he basically, you know, agreed that, you know, we want to make sure, is, is, should I take the patient back? You know, should I take the correction off? And and uh, the decision was made uh, uh, by all three of those, um, you know, my senior mentors, that it wouldn't be worthwhile to do that because um, it was clearly a vascular vascular issue. Um, uh, so I did not uh, uh, take the patient back to the OR. But I remember Ron Wall saying, you know, welcome to, uh, you know, you started your, your life as a spinal deformity surgeon starts today. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, this happens to everyone, you know, probably earlier career than you expected. But, um, you know, you were, you're, I was doing challenging cases by then. Again, I had... A list literally of 100 patients at the Shriners that Perry Schenecker handled handed me when I started my practice. So um, I probably was diving a little deeper than I should have at that point. But uh, uh, yeah, I was devastated. And, and honestly, um, uh, uh, it, it, it was, I mean, you have to have that happen. I mean, I, in retrospect, obviously, it wasn't fun going through, but I did learn a lot through that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I thought it through, and obviously, I didn't do anything. I thought I'd do anything differently, but I obviously learned that uh, you can't ignore things post op. Obviously, I, I uh, learned that you have to really manage post op uh, patient care as much as intra op, right? I mean, uh, not, uh, so uh, that, that's when I started realizing you have to well, watch uh, the, the mean pressure, uh, you know, even during major deformity corrections for the you know, first 24 hours or so after surgery, not just in the OR and things like that. So I, I learned by that, and, and, um, and obviously it's helped, that helped me uh, probably avoid other catastrophes like that later in my career. But uh, as far as complications and how, how you manage them, I, you know, that's, that's a tough question because um, you know, I hate complications as much as anyone. And, and I think as I alluded to earlier, complications currently in my career actually bother me probably more than at any time because I'm not supposed to have complications, right? I've, I've in 28 years, I've experienced about any possible complication. I, I prepare to uh, try and avoid any possible complication, right? I mean, I've done research and, are, and I've listened and I've had others, uh, you know, um, uh, help us uh, all together, you know, determine how the best way to avoid complications and let alone manage them. Uh, so I, I really, you know, my practice shouldn't have complications now in, in, in an ideal world, but obviously that's not true. So, um, uh, so that's one thing I always get to 
fellows, I, I, I kind of a reality check that, you know, just get ready for that because that, you know, uh, if you really care about your patients, complications are always going to hit you, hit you hard. And, and you have to have somehow a way of dealing with that because, um, if you, know, if you don't care, that's, that's, you know, then won't bother as much, but that's not, that's, yeah, not that's, right. that's even know. worse. That's even worse. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, you know that, I don't want to train anyone who's got that kind of attitude. Uh, at the same time, I mean, it can't completely demoralize you because, you know, you got to get up and, and, you know, get back on the, on the horse, get back on the throwing. And, and uh, you have another patient that's, uh, you know, requiring, requesting your, your, your top care, your best effort. Um, so that, you know, and then, and, and, and that's something that's not hard. I mean, that's, I mean, that's not easy. That's hard at, at times. Uh, I guess, you know, when I was operating five days a week, I just, uh, you know, I, I had no choice. I just had to go back and do my best. Luckily, I never had several, you know, horrible complications occur in a row. And, or I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now as well. You know, I've been, I've been fortunate that, um, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly had my fair share of, of devastating complications, but uh, never kind of stacked, you know, up in a row that, uh, that just was totally demoralizing to me. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, it's also made me realize that, you know, you're going to have some complications doing this kind of work. You know, the key is that you need to be the patient's biggest advocate. You know, there's, there's a huge bond, as you know, when you when you take a spinal horny patient to the OR. You're in charge of that patient not only during the surgery, but afterwards as well. And um, so they have to know that, you know, even if they get a complication, you're going to fight the, the, the hardest to, 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 to improve the situation, to get whatever consults you need to help you manage that patient. And and be their biggest advocate. And I think if you do that, uh, you know, you'll have the patient on your side. And luckily, you know, the human body is, is a remarkable machine and no, most things do slowly heal with time. All right. I mean, not everything, but a lot of things heal with time. Um, and uh, so that, that gives you hope as well. So I, you know, there's so many things that have happened that slowly do improve with time. And, and, uh, uh, and you know, when you follow your patients long-term, you realize that. So you realize that, you know, it isn't as horrible, obviously a vascular injury with a spinal cord infarct, that's, that, you know, that's usually a, a done deal, but, uh, you know, even most of the neurologic things we have happen do improve slowly with time, as long as you've done the right surgery and, and the spine and the uh, neural axis is de adequately decompressed and you haven't either over compressed or over distracted the uh, neural elements, you, you know, most things will slowly get better, even if you have an intraoperative event. So that, that also has allowed me to kind of manage this and deal with complications, knowing that most things, you know, as long as you haven't, as long as you've done a really good job, technically most things will eventually get better, um, uh, whether it's neurologic or non-neurologic. But you just you just have to you know uh, be a, give your best effort and, and keep an eye on the ball even post-op as well, not just intra-op. So are you still able? Because uh, I mean, you're I, I'm I'm still at the point in my career when when I do you know very complex spine surgery uh, that the high of that personally you know, is able to sort of counterbalance, you know, uh, memory of complications in a way. I, it's, it's almost, sure. you, talk, you hear about the golfer who has that great round and they, ch they chase that great round. And I love, uh, the, 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 the outcomes and I love the, you know, the, the, the favorable patient stories and whatnot. And those, and those kind of highs really really keep you going, but the complications are hard. And I'm sort of curious, do you have strategies that allow you to always focus on, uh, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned a second ago, the fact that, that a lot of neurologic injuries do improve, but do you have, do you have strategies to help keep your eye on that prize in the face of complications that you can share? Yeah. So I, the way I, I, I try and keep an even keel, um, cause what I, I really believe in the yin and yang of life, Nick, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I try not to get too high and I try not to get too low. And if I have a great result on someone, uh, I, 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 I certainly 
enjoy that. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest with you. I certainly uh, enjoy that and, and feel proud of that. Uh, but I, I, in the back of my mind, I'm saying, all right, well, this is good, but you know, now what's going to happen to balance that out? Something is not so, uh, you know, great is going to happen to balance it. So I, I really do think that, uh, you know, there is a yin and yang in, in everyone's life and in, in everyone's career. And so you, the key is to be able to balance the yin and yang to make, you know, you're going in the right, right direction. So you just have a little bit more yin and yang, if you know yeah. what I mean, <laughs> at least from your, from your own perception. I mean, you know, I think honestly, in reality, it all balances out that we all have uh, ups and downs that balance out the, throughout our lifetime. But if you're a positive person, you see, you know, the ins more than the positives, more than negatives. And that, that's what keeps you going. Like that, that's the key for me, at least. Uh, I realize that, you know, um, uh, there's going to be a balance of how things kind of sort out, not, not only in my professional career, but my family life and everything, um, my personal life as well. And so I just try and recognize that you got to keep that balance and you got to realize that uh, it's great to have the highs, but uh, you're going to get, you're going to get lows too. Then you have to No, I, I mean, I if someone has a perfect life, you know, uh, let me know who they are. And I want to <laughs> kind of study how they've gotten that perfect life. I certainly don't have a perfect life. I've got a very fortunate life. I'm the luckiest man in the world. I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, but you have to have a way of dealing with uh, things that are suboptimal because everyone has that happen, right? Whether it's complications, whether it's uh, uh, you know situation with your family or your spouse, your loved one, whatever. I mean, um, uh, that's just the natural part of life. So you have to get get that balance and, and be able to 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 understand that at the end of the day you, know, you have to be positive. We're, you know, we're all fortunate what 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 we do. I mean, one thing that always grounds me is that you know when I'm making rounds every morning, that um, although you know no matter how tired I am or how whatever I have going on. I mean, bottom line is I'm so fortunate to be the one making the rounds, not one being yeah. rounded on. Right. I mean, uh, so that, that keeps me, um, grounded. And I, and I did that also my children, they were younger. I used to bring them to the Shriners hospital with me on the weekends to round and see, you know, uh, these kids in traction and, and, uh, uh, and post-op patients and stuff, you know, just you know, obviously from afar, they had no idea what they were seeing, but just realizing they're, they're pretty fortunate. Right. I mean, uh, you know, they're going home to go play with their, you know, their friends and ride their bikes. And these kids are, and in halo traction for six weeks, getting ready for, a, you know, a 12 hour surgery. So uh, I think it's important to kind of see the other side and really appreciate that we are very fortunate. And that's why I, uh, that's why I kind of look at things and, and keep a, a level head and also keep uh, kind of moving forward with, a, with as much optimism as I possibly can. That's great. Uh, I, I want to, um, you and I got the opportunity to speak on a panel together last year um, at, at SRS and uh, we right. both enjoyed a talk that Chris Ames gives, and I didn't really know Chris because obviously as a, as a pediatric spine uh, deformity guy, he's not really as much in my world, but I've been sort of obsessed and fascinated with this, and I'm actually working with uh, Mike Kelly on some, on some stuff uh, looking at AI in the future. But, but the, the part of Chris's talk that was so fascinating to me was the ability uh, to use predictive modeling and artificial intel uh, intelligence and machine learning to look at complication management in the future. And I'm curious because you've obviously had a big role in ISSG and, uh, and look at, at safety, I think, through as, as fine a lens as anybody who I've ever heard speak. What do you think the future of complication prediction and management is right now in complex spine surgery? I mean, how will this look in five or 10 years? It's going to look a lot different. Uh, and what's it really doing, honestly, is remember earlier when I mentioned that, you know, 28 years of experience basically has made me a better surgeon because of my internal memory, right? Well, that's, that's, that's a tiny fraction of what AI can do, right? AI puts that on steroids, right? 
um, uh, now, you know, you get basically multiples and, and um, uh, exponential amounts of data that goes into the prediction, where I only have, you know, 20 years of doing 200 spinal deformity surgeries a year, right? You add that to, you know, 1,000 other surgeons and they're 200 patients. Now, you know, and then you get basically the data and then you add uh, uh, the ability to analyze that uh, in ways that, you know, the human brain can even do. That. And that's where basically we're going to end up. So that's, that we're in the cusp of a, of a major change with how we, uh, you know, assess our patients pre-op, um, uh, uh, select the, the, the right patient for the right operation. This is all going to change in the next five years. Uh, I think for both in the pediatric and adult world, all for the better, because it's just harnessing, you know, the, this newfound um, technology that we have uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a really in a similar manner that we what we've all done our whole career, right? I mean, bottom line, if I you know see a fifty five degree one cn curve, I mean, I've you know I've done hundreds of those in the past, and I you know and I picked up little pointers on all those hundred cases, right? Well, now you know uh, with with AI, you'll you'll get a hundred thousand that'll be analyzed and give you the best way to do that case, right? I mean, it's, it's the same idea. It's just putting on a macro scale what we've done on a micro level individually. And so um, it's going to be a huge change, all for the better. It's going to, I think, allow us, especially in the adult world, more than the pediatric world, in the adult world, select out, you know, who should really have complex deformity surgery and then what type of surgery, because it is still the Wild West. I mean, there's uh, there's not really um, good paradigms and good algorithms for uh, patient selection and uh, treatment options. And it may, that doesn't mean there's going to only be one way to treat things. There may be several ways to treat things, right, depending on what you're best at. And that's why I think one thing that, I'm, uh, that I differ a little bit with, with Chris and those is I think personally, everyone's gonna have to have their own predictive modeling because uh, you know the way that my team functions in my OR with my skill set is different than someone else, right? So uh, I, uh, so you know, in other words, if, if the best way to treat something would be with an anterior and posterior spinal fusion, in my hands, I'm probably not gonna do a great job with that because I've done, a, I'm not done an anterior approach in 20 years, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why I think it has to be individualized. So I predict that, uh, you know, the use of predictive modeling and artificial intelligence for helping to assess who to operate on, what uh, what type of surgery to do and how to do the surgery to avoid complications is going to be done on an individual surgeon level, not at a macro level of, of all ISSG or harm study group uh, surgeon um, uh, members. I really think to optimize it, it has to be done at the individual level. That's uh, that's really interesting, um, uh, which which brings us to uh, a little bit of a, a different topic. And, and I wanted to transition to this. Um, which is sort of the influence of companies maybe in the AI world, or, you know, you and I have had the opportunity to talk about um, standardizing a, uh, an implant protocol for, for using sort of an implant system that would work for say all one uh, CN curves um, to use your example. And I'm curious how you currently feel the relationship between industry, again, whether it be a technology industry or an implant company, uh, uh, what role that they have in, uh, well, certainly in your career historically, but also in, in orthopedics in general and, and spine surgery in general? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, um, you know, I've, I've got a conflict. My, my work primarily with Medtronic throughout the years is, is well known and, and, and something actually I'm proud of. I mean, uh, it's interest, interesting that um, uh, obviously all my patients for over 20 years now have signed a waiver, you know, mandated by Washington University, initially now Columbia, knowing that I, you know, I do have a conflict uh, with the uh, uh, instrumentation and implants that will be used in their surgery. And, and in 20 years, not one patient has refused to sign that, uh, hmm. that waiver. Uh, the acknowledgement. And if anything, 
after they read that and after we counsel them that, uh, the vast majority of uh, things I hear are positive saying, my, my, you know, my goodness, I mean, the fact that you've been involved in design, um, uh, 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 the design uh, of, of the equipment that you're using must mean that, you know, you really are on top of your game, that you really know this stuff. And, uh, and you know, the equipment like the back of your hand, I said, you're absolutely <laughs> right. That, that is, to me, that's a huge advantage I, uh, to that and from that perspective. So it's, it's not, not been a negative at all, although obviously the perception of that, especially, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago was, was a little bit more negative than it is now. But um, I think the key from my perspective was uh, number one, I, I really tried to get an academic, um, uh, reputation prior to working with industry. So I really didn't do any industry work for eight or nine years of my practice until basically 2000 is when I started contractually working with Medtronic. Um, and by that time, I was an endowed professor at Washington University mm -hmm. by 2000. Um, I don't know, again, I, I, I don't know if anyone uh, really, it, it mattered to anyone for that, but it mattered to me. Uh, I, I wanted, my goal was to do you know, the, do as much good surgery as I could and then to develop an academic reputation before I started uh, having to wear, you know, unfortunately, an industry hat, you know, and and, and, and list my conflicts uh, before any talk. So uh, whether that made a difference to anybody, I, I, I mean, it, uh, it, it's hard to say, but it made a difference. It made me feel better about it, uh, to tell you the truth, because, again, especially back 2000, there was still a lot of negativity around industry relations. You know, the bottom line is we need industry, right? We're, we're, there are partners, uh, societies need industries, surgeons need industry uh, to, to help us innovate um, uh, in all, all, all realms of what we do. So there, but there obviously has to be appropriate checks and balances. And I, and I hope I've done uh, a good job of, of, of being a leader in that. I, was, I know from Medtronic, I was a, one of the first one, one of the software Nanic actually to start doing, you know, 15 minute logs of exactly documenting everything I did for the company, the, for any consulting payment, uh, uh, being very, very formalized about that. Uh, and they actually used kind of my, um, my, te uh, my approach to uh, the, that and uh, how they set up their whole consulting agreements with everyone. So I, I wanted to be a leader in that to make sure it's done the right way. Because obviously, you know, the issue is that it, it can be um, abused. Uh, uh, we, know, we all know about that. And I certainly didn't want to go into a, a situation where I was, uh, I would lose my academic reputation because of working with industry. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, it is what it is. I'm, some people obviously probably uh, aren't, uh, aren't appreciative of that. And, um, and I, I, I respect their opinion, but um, I personally believe I am a better spine deformity surgeon uh, today because of my uh, industry relations last 20 years. Um, uh, uh, and then at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just trying to be the best surgeon I can be. So, and that, and that's helped me to do that. So that's, that's why I've done it. Now you're obviously a, a pretty busy guy. Uh, how do you balance that, uh, that desire for innovation in, within an industry, which is a little bit of a time consuming process against the challenges, obviously clinical and research and family. Yeah, well, that's uh, I knew that question was coming up. So I, I'm not I'm not probably the perfect person to give you, give you the answer to that uh, that people should emulate, uh, Nick. Uh, so I the first thing I want to say is uh, I don't know how to manage balance. I'm managing imbalance. Um, uh, you know, there is I don't know. I mean, bottom line is it's it, it, you can imagine hard for someone who was operating four or five days, full days a week, um, uh, uh, doing you know uh, publishing. 10, 20, 30 papers a year, going to uh, one or two meetings a month, uh, either national, international, uh, and trying to, uh, you know, uh, be a husband and father to three children. 
in the last uh, 28 years. So, you know, I, I, I something's got to give, right? There's no way that I was uh, doing an optimal job and all that. And again, and also, you know, working with industry, as, as you mentioned as well. So there's no way that um, I did an optimal job uh, of all those at any one time, but I, I try to do the best I can by managing the imbalance. Um, you know, uh, uh, and focusing obviously on, on what uh, what uh, what uh, was the most important thing uh, uh, at hand. Uh, I'm so, obviously, sometimes my family suffered because of that, and I I've apologized to them many times um, uh, about that, and that's probably my my biggest regret. Uh, uh, honestly, thank goodness my my wife has just been a terrific partner and and saddle the uh, load of, um, uh, of raising our children when I, when I wasn't around as much as I should have been. So uh, it's probably my, my biggest regret. Uh, although at the end of the day, I think um, even my children realized that I, I was put in a, 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 a very unique situation of, of again, of, of, of being able to take care of some very, very uh, critically uh, ill and deformed patients. And, 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 uh, and I've been fortunate to be able to do that. Right. And so I think, thankfully I've, I've done it for a good reason. I've, I've worked hard for, for good reasons that, to, to, to try and help out uh, patients who other surgeons, you know, really, uh, uh, felt that was beyond their means of taking care of. So I, uh, that's how I justified it. Um, you know, if I was just doing, uh, you know, a hundred, uh, uh, scopes a week, just to, you know, do as many scopes as possible. I think that I, I, th I think I'd have a lot more regret, honestly. And I think probably my family wouldn't be with me and wouldn't be on my side, but they realize, uh, you know, the, the type of cases that I took on that often people, most surgeons in the country did not, did not want to tackle. And I you know, appreciated that. I appreciated their, them sending me those type of cases. And, uh, cause I, you know, I really was, uh, and I probably still on the end of the road for, for a lot of patients. Um, uh, not, not, not everyone. There's so many, obviously competent, competent surgeons now that can take care of people, but, uh, certainly I appreciate those surgeons who feel like, you know, they, um, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're uh, a bit challenged in, in being able to successfully treat someone and, and sending that patient to me. That's obviously a big part of my practice still. So I appreciate that. And, and that's how I think I've justified um uh you know spending more time on my career and probably less time on my family than i really should have but uh, i i do say though you know er everything changes over time and everything's dynamic i'm i'm much better about this the last five ten years than i was earlier i realized that um uh you know i i i was being a little uh, unfair to my family and so uh, my wife and i we went through some counseling about that and and I set my priorities a little bit differently. I mean, not probably not perfect. I mean, no, no one's perfect. I'm not, I'm not, not a perfect uh, husband or father now, but I'm much better than I was in the past. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm proud of that, honestly, because it, it took effort uh, for me to do that. Um, and, uh, but it's a constant struggle. I mean, uh, balancing uh, my clinical academic uh, and uh, family and personal life is still something I struggle with, uh, with uh, uh, even now. Uh, although I think I'm, I'm much better at doing that because uh uh, I've just had a lot of experience and, and, and a lot of thoughtful reflection on what, what, you know, how I need to manage that. Yeah. Uh, I, I thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, certainly it's amazing again, 10 years into practice, how, how it, it hasn't gotten any easier. And I thought it was going to get easier. And it hasn't gotten nope, any easier. Just harder. Um, nope. and, and I've also got a, a wonderful, um, spouse who's uh, been incredibly supportive and great kids, but you know, one of the things that I've constantly been looking for are positions of stability. Um, and we all have different tips and tricks. I, I'm a 5 a.m. workout guy. It's funny. Um, the only person who I think sleeps or gets up earlier than me uh, sometimes is Dave Skaggs. And I'll wake up at 5 and an email will come across from, across from Dave Skaggs, who, of course, is on Pacific time. And I'm like, what are you doing up at 2? But um, I'm curious what the daily routines are that you have that have allowed you to sort of avoid 
burning out from the volume of cases, from the amount of uh, people pulling in different uh, uh, directions. I know that you said that you work out regularly. Have these things changed over time? Um, any tips? Yeah, so um, they have changed over time. I, I mean, I am definitely a aerobic fiend. Um, I was a long distance runner. Um, I just recreationally both through college, med school, and then residency in my early attending years. Um, and I, I loved early morning workouts, just similar to what you mentioned. I was, uh, uh, you know, 5 a.m., actually as early as 4.30 is, I think, the earliest that I was getting up routinely. Um, and what happened was that um, as I, and it was fine to my 30s and 40s, but as I entered uh, uh, my sixth decade in my 50s, um, it was getting too much basically to get up, work out, 4.30, 4.45 in the morning, you know, for an hour and then go to work and do a 12-hour case. Uh, I was doing it, but um, uh, the bottom line is I ultimately kind of crashed and had a, a medical issue that uh, really kind of woke me up saying that that uh, I, I needed to change. Um, and unfortunately, I, luckily, I uh, it was something that uh, I was able to get a second chance at. It wasn't the, as horrendous as it could have been, but... Um, and, and honestly, in, in retrospect, and this is my key here, there were there were signs that I knew that um, I, I should have changed because literally I would I would reach a, you know a, a, a Thursday night Friday morning when I was going to go work out, saying, uh, "Man, I need I need some more sleep. I mean, I, I don't feel good, right?" But but of course, what do I do? You you know you, you resort back to your toughness. I can tough this out. I'm going to get up at 4:30. I'm going to work out when I when I, when I really shouldn't have, uh, you know, falling asleep in an Uber coming home, you know, at uh, eight o'clock at night, you know. Uh, I had, I had hints that I was, I was pushing the, pushing the, the envelope. Right. And I didn't listen to those hints. So please, if you start getting hints in your life that you're pushing it a little too much, listen to those hints. Uh, I was given a second chance, thankfully, but, uh, but I'm a fortune, I, you know, that, 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 uh, that happened. So what did I do? I had to adjust. Basically I had to stop getting up at, um, uh, to work out in the morning, um, and then go, go to surgery. Cause again, my, my nutrition was uh, suboptimal and you know, I wasn't, wasn't hungry after working out. So I wasn't eating. So, I, you know, I basically started, you know, my, my main meal of the day was coming at nine o'clock at night after I worked <laughs> out at four 30 in the morning. I mean, it was, it was, it was silly. I mean, it, uh, you, know, you think I'm a, uh, an intelligent guy. I really wasn't being very intelligent about things like that. Right. So, um, so now I, I get my workouts in, as I mentioned, I, I worked out right before we got online here. So I, um, um, I try and get home, uh, two, three times a week by five, six o'clock if I can and work out then I'm still up early. I'm still up at four forty-five, five, but I'm not going to work out then. Uh, cause I realized that it wasn't productive for me when I was getting older. I wasn't, uh, getting stronger. I wasn't getting in shape. I was just doing it because I mentally, I, I, I had to do it for my mental conditioning. Um, and that, that wasn't good. So, um, I realize now that, uh, uh, I had adjust and, and I'm adjusted uh, better. I'm still working out three, four days a week and staying in shape and, and enjoying it more. And, um, and I'm, I'm in a much better mood. I'm getting more sleep. I'm getting at least six, seven hours of sleep now instead of four or five hours, which again, worked fine for 25 <laughs> years, but then it didn't work fine. Right. And, uh, and I tell fellows this, I mean, uh, yeah, that's something we all, you know, you think you can tough it out and get less sleep, but ultimately it catches up with you unless you have that special gene. I forget the name of the gene that, you know, you really can exist on four hours of sleep. There are people who can do that. I was not one of them. I thought I was, and I wasn't. And, um, and I, uh, and I almost paid a big price for that. So, um, so listen to your bodies. I'm saying, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and you, and you have to change over time. Sometimes what you're doing in your thirties and forties, you know, as you age and things change, you may not be able to do as you get older. So you have to uh, be dynamic about things. And a lot of the part of your life, you have to be dynamic. And that was certainly one thing I learned. Um, I, so I want to finish up uh, talking about something that uh, may be a little bit more uh, unique and 
uh, but also maybe challenging to to talk about uh, as a as a guy who I consider to be pretty humble, which is your legacy within the world of uh, of complex spinal deformity surgery. Um, you know, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I'm also curious about the fact I, I've thought about this a number of times, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a background. A couple of years ago, you, Lindsay Andres, and I were on a, a panel together on uh, early onset scoliosis at, where we were supposed to bring a case. And so Lindsay brought what I thought was a very hard case. I thought that I brought a pretty hard case. And you brought a, a case of a child who I'm sure you remember well, who had a deformity that I had not previously heard of, which was uh, uh, ilioaxial axillary, a, yeah, axillary, axillary uh, impingement. Uh, which right. for those in the crowd who, uh, who may not be familiar with this, this is when your ilium is compressing your upper extremity vessels in your axilla, basically, uh, from showing up with a brachial plexopathy. That was the presenting symptom was a brachial plexopathy on the ipsilateral side of the arm. And, and, and this was a fascinating case. And I realized, I think the Mike Vitale said, so what would you do Nick? Or maybe it was Dave Skaggs. And I said, I'd send it to Larry. And, and you alluded to this earlier. You're often thought of as a surgeon who has an answer or option for cases that a lot of other people feel are too complicated or too complex, even from surgeons who have a lot of spine experience. And they're really a very small group of surgeons who probably have this capacity. I'm curious how you anticipate that this can be transitioned, these skills that you've developed and the experience that you've gathered over years as you start to reach, you know, sort of the later periods of your career. Um, and I, and it, I asked it in a way of, uh, of Mike Kelly and Josh Pays as to, you know, who is going to be the, who are the next people who are going to be following Larry in, in this area? And they didn't have a great answer. And I'm sort of curious if you do, because um, I, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. So um, uh, great, uh, great points. I think, and remember in that case, uh, uh, which I think everyone expected me to show a multi-level VCR, I didn't no, know yeah. that retraction in, in a growing rod for several years. And actually, interestingly, I just finished treatment of that girl last year after like nine years of, of um, uh, growing rod lengthenings uh, with a L5 PSO for her sagittal round line. She also had a complex sagittal plane deformity too. So, uh, but again, I never did a VCR. Wow. I treated her with uh, uh, nine months of halo gravity <laughs> traction. Her mom was a nurse. One of the few patients I let go home with halo gravity traction. And I got her uh, her uh, um, axilla otobur ilium and able enough to be able to put uh, uh, instrumentation in her uh, basically a kickstand kind of construct where I just jacked her off her ipsilateral pelvis for for seven, eight, nine years uh, with uh, growing around lengthenings. And I uh, did a definitive fusion with uh, ultimately uh, L5 PSO to reline her sagittally. But bottom line is no no VCR wow. is what everyone kind of expected. But um, you know, again, I think to me uh, there are so many talented surgeons now in this country who can do on a uh, daily basis what I do. I really do believe that. I think the key, though, is they have to get experience and they have to, I think, have the same academic drive that I have. Uh, and what I will leave to them, again, hopefully, is the, uh, the, the foundation for that kind of practice. Um, and by, again, by hopefully leaving a legacy, not only as someone who, you know, gave their best in surgery at all times uh, from a technical perspective, but also from a planning perspective, uh, but also, but also is from a reflective perspective that, you know, constantly wanted to uh, find a better way to do things and find a safer way to do things. And that's, again, as I mentioned earlier, through clinical research. Um, so, you know, I, again, I, I can only treat one patient at a, at a time, 
But if I can help educate other surgeons to help their patients, then I have exponential reach. And that's why I've, you know, I've loved uh, my experiences with the SRS and other organizations and, and the education I've done of not only my fellows, but obviously the visiting surgeons and others that I've met um, uh, in, in meetings as well. So um, uh, hopefully, you know, that, that's, that's all I can do. That's what I can be, I can be responsible for what I, what I do with my, my patients and, how, and what I do for our profession. And I'm trying to optimize that now in the, in the latter part of my career. And, uh, you know, I think we're in good shape. I don't, I don't you know, I, again, I, I don't know um, uh, uh, anyone specifically, obviously, who's going to, quote, you know, take over my practice. But I, I've trained over 100 surgeons, and every single one of them are talented enough to, uh, to do what I do on a routine basis. But I can tell you, the other thing that I must mention, Nick, is you, you got to have some luck because, again, everything has fallen in place for me. Uh, I've been able to get, you know, uh, very um, devoted uh, nurses and, and, and assistants and, um, and technicians to help me in the OR and uh, in, in and out of the OR. I've, you know, have had phenomenal fellows that have been my first assistant. I've had, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, my uh, wife and family that's allowed me to, you know, to, to work crazy hours and then go all over the world to, to both train and teach. Um, uh, and so I, I, and I've, and I've had my health to be able to do this. Not everyone has that, right? I mean, sometimes uh, life calls you and pulls you in other directions that won't allow you to, to kind of have the kind of career I've had. And then, and I'm just really lucky and fortunate. And I think that's probably uh, when I've talked to other surgeons, uh, probably one of the main limitations, you know, that, that you know, they're, they have some health issue with their themselves or their, their loved one or their children that, that requires more time. And then, and I, I respect that, you know, they, they have to do that. So I've been really fortunate that everything, everything's kind of fallen in place for me. Right. It's been kind of like a perfect uh, combination of, uh, of, uh, of things that allow me to get to where I am. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, but I, I think our, our profession's in good shape there, as I mentioned, the, you know, the, the training that, that surgeons get now is phenomenal. Um, uh, the, the, you know, the research that we have now is, is phenomenal. And again, the, the next five to 10 years uh, with um, uh, AI and predictive modeling, you know, it's going to completely change and improve what we're doing and lower our complication rates. And uh, so I think the future is quite bright uh, uh, for, for all surgeons, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I want every patient having a spinal deformity surgery to, to have the best outcome, not just my own patients. I really, I, you know, I really believe that. And that's why I've worked hard to, to try and um, uh, give uh, whatever fortunate uh, experience I've had in my career to try and give that to other surgeons to let them do a better job. I mean, it, that's, that's all. I think that's the main thing I'm, I'm focused on. Oh, that's great. That's a, that's a phenomenal answer. Um, so I have one last question, which is just sort of a fun little question, but I always enjoy hearing this uh, from people. And actually uh, your pike, uh, partner, Mike Vitale is probably somebody who I listen to most on this. Um, uh, you're obviously a guy who ha who probably doesn't have a ton of time to read, but I know uh, from hearing you uh, talk that you do get a bit of uh, time and and put a lot of thought into reading of uh, you know non medical works on performance improvement and whatnot. I'm curious if you have books that you recommend to your fellows. I'm always trying to give um, our learnees uh, or excuse me learners. Um, uh, books and, and ideas for ways that they can improve themselves as they get into practice. Do you have any books that you really like that you recommend to people? Um, nope, not, uh, I'm not a, a huge, um, fan of uh, pleasure reading probably because I've done, I, I, I mean, I, when I have, uh, that's something that I've, I've had a decide in my life. Am I going to, you know, 
write papers or review manuscripts <laughs> or do pleasure reading enough. And obviously, you can know from my hats what's happened. But one one uh, book that comes out actually it's on my desk that I that I reference that I do uh, recommend to to my trainees is um, a book called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. I've heard it's of a that, great but, book. Uh, yeah. Uh, the title of it is why most people never learn from their mistakes, but some do. Um, again, going back to the fact that this uh, self-reflection of what you can continue to, uh, to learn from, you know, your mistakes, uh, you know, both mistakes and, 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 and accomplishments, but mainly from your mistakes, that's what, that will make you a far better search in learning from your mistakes and learning from your successes, right? I truly believe that. So that's something I do, I do stress uh, is, a, is a global theme in this book, obviously highlights in much more articulate manner than I could ever ever could state but uh that, that is really true i think that's the way of, of looking at complex spine surgery is uh, is truly learning from your mistakes and then you know trying to avoid them and and treat them uh that's really what it's all about and uh and i think that makes us uh, uh makes us all better surgeons oh, that's great well um larry i i mean i honestly could could talk for about five more hours but uh but to be respectful of your time and probably to our audience time uh we've been talking for 90 minutes this has been uh, a real pleasure. And I think that your insights are incredibly well thought out and uh, you were able to to get the points across and verbalize them uh, really well. So uh, I'm very appreciative for you taking the time to do this out of your busy schedule and uh, look forward to listening to this conversation um, in the future again. And, and I'm sure I'll gain a lot each time I do. So thank you very much. Thanks for your time, Nick. And thanks for yeah, working on this with many other people. It's uh, be very important for for uh, people in the future to, to kind of go back and, and understand how people uh, think and act. And, um, you know, we're all just trying to do the best job we can, right? But we all do approach it a little bit differently. So it's good to get that documented. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Larry. like to again thank Larry for his agreeing to talk to me for such a long time about such a wide variety of subjects. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and please look to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other areas where you get your podcast to download the other interview for a PD Pod podcast as well as the JPO podcast put on by Carter Clement and his team. I hope that everybody stays safe and sane during these challenging times, and I look forward to seeing you at our next opportunity.